0: you. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to the Genesis of Conception My name is Rebecca David Thank you very kindly for joining me Either today or tonight Whichever applies to you specifically This is a podcast in the space Between the picket lines Where we talk about all things pro-life But we come at it from a strictly Scientific, logical And provable basis Now, on our previous episode, we discussed the stages of fetal development and what each month specifically entails. Today, we take that a step further and we take a look at the big three ways to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the child in the womb is most definitely both human and living. And after that, I actually have a surprise for you. So first, as a step of proof, is the scientific. And this is broken down into the three subsets, which are living, human, and whole. And more on that later, don't you worry. Second is philosophical. And for the philosophical, we are going to get to look at a fascinating question and slash or query, depending on how you specifically look at it. Third and finally will be something called the sled argument. It was coined by a man named Steven Schwartz. And of course, we will get into all the details on that further on the, further on down the line. Now, before we go any farther let me tell you about a gentleman named Steve Wagner. He is the executive director of Justice for All, which focuses on training and speaking and outreach between the party lines when it comes to abortion versus life-saving measures for both mother and also for baby. Now, he has traveled all over this country, which uh, if you are listening to this in America, that's the country I'm referring to, and he has spent thousands of hours Pouring into this endeavor. And from what he has seen during his time doing this, he outlined the living, human, and whole trifecta. So, to get into the living portion, Wagner pays specific attention to something called cellular reproductivity. Now, thanks to Oregon State University's Science Department research facility, we have an easy way to classify what cellular reproductivity actually means. Basically, humans are multicellular organisms. We've got independent cells working together. Additionally, all living structures of human anatomy contain cells. And finally, almost all functions of human physiology are performed in or initiated by cells. Now, this is key because as we know, compliments of the British Society for Cell Biology.org, the cells of any person hold all kinds of answers. My cells and your cells can connect our perspective pasts to our current presence. Think uh, ancestry, for instance. Now, cells also shed light on your level of health versus your probability of contracting a disease. Uh, Great examples of this are Alzheimer's and slash or cystic fibrosis. I pray you never experience either one of those things. Cells even play a role in proving the innocence or the guilt of a person. Think molecular DNA testing to clear someone of an accusation. You see, cells and their ability to reproduce hold the key to determining an uncountable number of things about a person. So, translating that to the womb... If you take cells from a growing baby in the womb, they will register as human DNA, which means that they can do all the same things that the cells of an already born human can do. Additionally, in the process of growth within the womb, that child's cells are reproducing at an incredible rate, which is not seen any further on down the line than in the womb. Ergo, that child meets the requirements of Wagner's scientific proof number one, which is living. Then we get to proof number two, which is human. Now for this one, Wagner brings light to human DNA and human parentage, which I actually went into great depths about in my first episode. But to recap... Since we know that scientifically, different species, separate species, cannot interbreed, then logically, if a woman is pregnant, she had to have gotten pregnant by a human male's sperm. And since two humans procreating cannot produce anything but another human, the species within a human woman's womb must be a human child." Therefore, the child meets the requirements of Wagner's scientific proof number two, a.k.a. human. Then we get to proof number three, which is whole. Now, I know you might be questioning that one right now due to the different stages of fetal development, but let me shed some further light on it for you. For this one, Wagner outlines a few criteria which must be met. Nutrition, environment, and time allowed for development. So to translate, if the life within the womb is given proper nutrition a proper environment, and proper time to develop, then once the woman gives birth, it will be to a fully formed human baby. Now, of course, birth defects definitely exist. But I argue that neither you nor I would ever look at a deformed person who we met in just everyday life and tell them that they are anything other than a whole human being. Thus, pre-born child meets the requirements of Wagner's scientific proof number three, which is whole. So to recap the scientific proofs of humanity, the child in the womb must be living and human and be born whole, which he or she most definitely is and will be. We have Anne from the Stages of Fetal Development episode as one fun reference to that. Now on to the philosophical proof, which boils down to one basic concept. There is no philosophical difference between a child in the womb and humans living in the world after birth that does not also draw a line somewhere within the general populace. Allow me to give you a few examples. First, let's take a look at dependency on another human, or another person, if you will. I've heard this used as a pro-choice argument innumerable times. Now, an accurate philosophical response is that while dependency on the mother is very real for a child in the womb, we also see it in multiple other already-born categories of humans, such as disabled people, most young children, and quite a few elderly people. Uh, For a good example of this, just look at the havoc that 2020 wrought on homes for the elderly. Now, additionally, I will point out that humans at maximum dependency are still very much human. A good way to frame this is that dependency is only counted as a negative for those who are still in the womb. In every other segment of society, when somebody needs extra help, they are looked on with extreme favor. And it is both the right and the moral thing to do to give them that help. If it's right and moral outside of the womb, it would then follow that it would be right and moral within the womb. Now, for our second philosophical example, let's argue from the stance of needing an independently beating heart. This one's very fun to think about. First, science shows that a pre-born baby's heart starts beating at about three weeks after fertilization. And I actually did cover that in the stages of fetal development episode if you'd like to go back. Now, Second, within the world at large, there are many individuals with heart conditions who require some external mechanism in order to survive. Additionally, there are thousands for whom someone else's already beating heart is their only solution to continue life. For reference on this, in 2018 alone, which is the most recent data collected by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as of this recording... There were 3,440 heart transplants. To translate that, that means that 3,440 people literally needed to have a heart given to them by somebody else in order to survive. Now since we know that it is correct to count a person with someone else's heart or with a heart beating mechanism as a living human, we should have zero qualms about giving pre-born infants the same kindness with their own hearts. Our third philosophical example is brain activity. Now there are those who make the argument that we cannot prove at what point of pregnancy brain activity officially kicks in. Now, while this is actually scientifically inaccurate, again, you can reference my, reference my stages of fetal development episode, it also discounts a good portion of the medically incapacitated world. Think of, for instance, a comatose patient. Now, sometimes doctors have a fairly strong idea of when that person might wake up and go home, and sometimes it is just a matter of waiting patiently and trusting on God's providence. You can also keep in mind patients dealing with some state of vegetation. There have been cases where the doctors actually completely gave up hope, but the family refused to give up. And after some period of time, the person regained control over their own body. For a fantastic example of this, Martin Pistorius. Uh, You can go look up him. His story is pretty incredible, and there will be more on that later in this episode. Now, we count all of those people as being alive, and worthy of care and love. I argue to you that the pre-born child should philosophically be no different. So as we can see, any philosophical line that one might wish to draw to say that a pre-born child is not a real human can also be applied to some segment of the already born population. Now we know that it is morally wrong to murder the already born people. Therefore. It is also morally wrong to murder the one who is in the womb. Now, finally, we get to a fun acronym called SLED, S-L-E-D. It was developed by a man named Stephen Schwartz. Um, Ironically, it's not the classical music composer, but that guy does share the same name. This Stephen Schwartz uh, developed SLED. SLED stands for Size, Level of Development, Environment, and Dependency. And standittoreason.org breaks it down incredibly well for us. S for size. A preborn child is definitely smaller at all stages than even a newborn infant or a toddler might be. But that does not detract from his or her humanity. You see, humans are designed by Christ to be in a permanent state of growth in some capacity. Maybe it's height, hair, nails, etc. for the rest of our entire lives. Cellular reproductivity is one of our top gifts. Also, in another light, both, for instance, midgets and extremely tall people exist, and their uniqueness is hailed and wondered at. So, one cannot be logically disqualified from being human due to diminutive stature in the womb. Then we get to L, which is level of development. Similar to how a preborn child is vastly smaller than a toddler or a teenager, their level of development is going to be far diminished because the entire point of being in the womb is developing more to be ready for birth. Now, an easy way to wrap one's mind around this concept is as follows. Humans live for at least 18 to 25 years before our prefrontal cortex is fully developed. We know this thanks to the U.S. National Library of Medicine. In simple terms, that is why teenagers and young adults tend to do so many unwise things. Nobody would ever say that you should be allowed to murder a teenager or a young adult simply for still being in development, which is something that they have positively zero control over. In the same way, a preborn child is developing constantly and in all kinds of legitimately incredible ways. Some things take a couple of weeks to develop for the preborn child and some things take nine months. Now, just like the teenagers and the young adults... Preborn children have zero control over how fast they grow, and they should not face execution simply based on not being as developed as a born human. Then we get to E for environment. Now, the environment of the preborn child is his or her mother's womb for some period of time. Those on the pro choice side have always said to me some variant of the following thought process. It's the mother's body, so it's her choice what to do with it, which logically translates to its location is undesirable or scary or uncomfortable to those around it. Therefore, they can murder it. So let's take that argument and place it anywhere else on planet Earth. If we gave that logic and only that logic while standing trial for a murder anywhere else, the judge would show zero mercy. And why would the judge show zero mercy? Because people know intuitively that it is wrong to kill someone simply due to their location on planet Earth. So if you cannot do it anywhere else on planet Earth, and rightly so, you should not justify it within the womb either. Finally, D for dependency. Now this one actually loops back into our philosophical proofs, but let me expound just a smidgen further. The pre-born child is dependent on the mother for nutrition and a proper environment, which should also sound familiar from the whole-organism proof. Well, let's go up a level. Newborns are still dependent on their parents to provide nutrition and a safe environment. How about a toddler in a swimming pool? How about any level of growing child in a vehicle or a shopping center or any public space? How about educational needs and self-care needs, even for most adults, if we're being honest? Speaking as a college student here, heck yeah. We as a species are interdependent upon one another. We are not built to rely solely on ourselves for survival. We require human companionship and bonding and shared experiences and the like just as much as we require food and water and air and a safe home. That is why a very efficient form of torture is total isolation. That's part of why 2020 was such a gut-wrenching year for most of us. Every single human at any stage of growth is dependent on other people for things every single day. We all realize that this is just a basic and immutable part of life. So how on earth do we not collectively extend the same realization to the ones in the womb? who are also the ones who need it the most. Now, as you may have noticed, and as I stated at the beginning of this episode, these proofs intermingle with one another frequently, and I would argue that that is the beauty of it. Life was designed and created intentionally to be a stupendously woven and interdependent network of amazing possibilities. To see it in any other light simply does not do it justice. And life within the womb is an incredible part of that net. Now, to switch gears a bit, time for the surprise I promised you guys. Now, I realize that you might be someone who wants to do some independent reading on all things pro life, which I highly encourage. So I am going to start recommending a book to you in each episode of this podcast. Now, all of these books have been vetted and they come highly recommended. That said, today's book is Unplanned by Abby Johnson. Now, the short version is that Mrs. Johnson worked as a planned parenthood director for a really long time until she actually witnessed an abortion firsthand, and witnessing that abortion completely shattered her world. From that moment until the present day, she has been proudly pro-life, and she has actually built an entire powerful brand around activism and helping women. I actually got to meet her in person, and she is the sweetest and the most humble and the most caring type that you could possibly ask for. So if listening to books is your thing, you can actually find this book on Kindle or Audible or something called Kobo, which is K-O-B-O, and of course, on Amazon. And since we also discussed Martin Pistorius earlier in the episode, you can check out his autobiography, Ghost Boy, if you would like to. And before I receive any questions on this, none of this is sponsored. That is not my priority. I simply want to get truthful, helpful information out there. Now this, this is probably my favorite part of the episode right here. This is the point where I want to offer encouragement to you. If you or someone who you know is facing a crisis pregnancy, I have got plenty of resources to guide you to. No judgment, only love and help. You can find me on social media as proudly pro-life Gen Z woman, unless of course you're looking for me on Facebook, in which case I am Bex David, which is B-E-X and then last name D-A-V-I-D. If you need help or if you know someone who does or if you just want to get involved, please reach out to me. I am happy to be there for you. Now, as for next week, we're going to look at what abortions actually do and the aftermath for women. Now, I understand how heavy of a topic that is, but I would argue that that makes it all the more important to discuss it in an honest, truthful, plain and open way. And until then, be blessed. And never forget how much our creator loves you. And here is a friendly reminder that you are welcome here, no matter what your background or beliefs happen to be. Let's continue to be pioneers in the space between the picket lines together. God bless. See you next week.